UpperCervicalDocs.com. I think the, the first thing that we all have to really focus on is there's a theory we need to be united on the force and not the form. And that is that um, the chiropractic philosophy and upper cervical is just not just a philosophy of health, it's a philosophy of living. And um, you're going to find that some people have absolutely huge hands and they cannot contact C1. They have to use a machine or an instrument. Um, a few of my colleagues have blown out their shoulders making corrections, and so they have to make adjustments using machines or instruments. So whatever technique works for that individual doctor, I'm a big believer. So one of the things I really like about Blair is it's not judgmental. Hi, this is Dr. Paul Hambrick with UpperCervicalDocs.com, and here's an interview I did with Dr. Tom Forrest. Dr. Forrest is a 1974 graduate of Palmer College and has been a practicing upper cervical doctor for over 30 years. When he was still a young doctor, he was introduced to the Blair Technique and is now a certified instructor. He has spoken at Palmer College in Davenport, Iowa, and Life University in Marietta, Georgia. He is the son of a chiropractor and has two brothers who were upper cervical chiropractors. Dr. Forrest was also featured in the upper cervical documentary film, The Power of Upper Cervical. In this interview, he discusses the history of the Blair technique, the importance of unification of the upper cervical techniques, and what it takes to be on purpose. This was a fun interview. It's about 70 minutes long, divided into two parts. Please enjoy. Hello, Dr. Forrest. Hey, Dr. Forrest, it's Paul Hambrick. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? Doing fantastic. You'll have to bear with me, I'm, uh, I live in the middle of a ragweed farm and uh, it's kind of affecting me right now, so oh. I don't sound normal. Uh, let's start off, uh, tell, me, uh, tell me about uh, growing up, where you were born, and, uh, and let's get started with that question. Okay, well, I was... Um I was born in Clinton, Iowa, which is actually the easternmost portion of the state as it juts into Illinois. Uh, its only claim to fame is it's actually the only area where supposedly D.D. Palmer and Andrew Still, the founder of osteopathy, actually met. They supposedly had a fiery debate in a spiritualist camp there. Um, it's a rough and tumble river town. Uh, my father was a chiropractor there and uh, pretty much was raised there. Till I was about 17, and then the family moved to Southern California, then to Northern California, and we've kind of been up here ever since. Why? Uh, why did everybody move at that? Well, point? sadly enough, my uh, my father um, um, gave lots of seminars, attended a lot of chiropractic uh, programs, and uh, became very successful. And so he got his own plane, and uh, he and his associate and CA flew off to a uh, chiropractic convention, and sadly enough, the plane went down, mm. and uh, this happened when I was about nine. Mm. Um, oddly enough, my youngest brother was born about a month later, so my mother was left with nine children and uh, <laughs> no father. Good. So uh, the gist of it is um, she pretty much felt that uh, in that type of an economic environment, it was a difficult area to to raise children and so on. I just really thought that uh, California had more opportunities. So. Uh, we had some relatives out there and, and moved out here, and obviously have been here ever since. Yeah. What, was your dad an upper cervical chiropractor? Um, in, in, he actually worked in the, he graduated from Palmer in 51. He worked in Clearview Sanitarium, the uh, uh, sanitarium for emotionally disturbed people, in which they used uh, upper cervical techniques. In the beginning, he used more diversified type work, and then as time progressed, he 
lean more and more towards upper cervical. It's pretty much an upper cervical doctor around his past three, four years before he passed on. Mm. Uh, did you, I mean, nine years old, that's awfully young. Did you lose your father? But did you, did you know that uh, you wanted to do what he did when you grew up? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I've, I've had friends tell me, oh, you were in fourth grade. You were telling us you were going to be a chiropractor. I, 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 I think that um, deep down I just felt that way all the, all the time, um, although I readily admit I really didn't know much about it. Um, I just knew we didn't take pills. We didn't have vaccines. He made us eat these yucky-tasting vitamins, and we had to eat all this natural food, and we couldn't eat Wonder Bread and all the, you know, the quick preservative type foods that everybody else got to eat, um, but it it was just that was just our environment, and uh, of course my assumption was that everybody else lives this way too, um, and it was even to the point that uh, he took care of a lot of farmers and he would have them set aside specific type of animals that didn't get any preservative, you know, any types of shots or growth hormones or anything along those lines. So we were brought up in a very natural, uh, holistic type of an environment. Um, and so, to me, it just it just felt natural. So, um, I'm being long-winded, but the gist of it is, yes, I, I kind of knew from a very, very early age that was what I was going to do. Were you close to your dad? Uh, yes, I was. Um, I think I was the one who got spanked the most. Chances uh, <laughs> are, I was the most rambunctious of the group. Um, but yes, yes, we were very close. And uh, ironically enough, I... I really, really, really wanted to go with him on that final plane trip, and I almost talked him into it. And then finally, common sense came in. He realized that he just had this kid, you know, lingering around, so he just passed on that. But um, we, we were particularly close, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, where did you fall in line with the nine children? Say that again? Uh, where did you fall in line with the nine children? Were you in the middle? Right in the middle. Mm -hmm. yeah, four above and four below. You have a brother who's a chiropractor, right? Actually, I have two. My oldest brother, well, actually, my oldest brother went to Palmer for um, a few semesters and finally discovered that he actually wanted to be a CPA instead. He was really a numbers person. But my second oldest went through Palmer, and uh, ironically enough, my uncle's a Gonstead uh, practitioner, uh, married into the family. He's not directly, of course. Uh, but anyway, um, his assumption was my, my older brother would come out and practice with him. And so my brother went through school, and he actually went down to DE with Guy Reekman and got really excited about philosophical chiropractic and uh, um, also upper cervical. So right when he was ready to graduate, I went back to Palmer, and uh, he told me, buy every Palmer book you can. And ironically enough, the bookstore was selling books for 10 cents and 50 cents and a dollar and all these green books and things like that so I scarfed them up and so when my brother graduated he came back and had to inform my uncle that he's going to do upper cervical and then I graduated my uncle assumed I'd be with him and I came back and told him I was going to do upper cervical and then I have a younger brother who's three years younger than I am and he came back and the same scenario took place so we actually have three upper cervical doctors uh, and three different offices out here in the Bay Area. And do all of you practice uh, Blair Technique? Um, my older brother retired. My younger brother, Steve, actually has two practices. He does Blair, and then, of course, I do, too. Hmm. How were you introduced to Blair? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I knew I wanted to do upper cervical, and so I started practicing HIO toggle. And I was real happy with the protocol and in love with the philosophy, but I, I wasn't particularly in love with the results I was getting. And... Uh, 
you'll, you'll discover most upper cervical people focus on the patients that don't get well, the few that, that don't, and they don't really look at all the people they're really helping. So there was a little frustration there. And very, very early in practice, I was lucky enough to be placed on the uh, ICAC board, which is the ICA of California. And we actually had 10 doctors on the board, and one was a Gonstead doctor, and the rest of them were upper cervical. So I, I had the wonderful opportunity of uh, mingling with Dr. Stephen Duff Sr. and Dr. Daniel Kuhn and Dr. Weldon Muncy and all these, these movers and shakers in upper cervical. And both Dr. Kuhn and Muncy pulled me aside and said, you know, there's this method you really, really need to learn, and it is a Blair technique. And a couple months later, I got a phone call that Dr. Blair was going to be giving a five-day seminar down in Los Angeles, and I just needed to attend, and you don't say no to Dr. Muncy. So this was in 1977, and I attended the class, and my eyes just opened completely wide because it showed me where I was missing the boat. Uh, it showed me that, that Mother Nature does not make things that are symmetrical. Human beings do that. And as a result, the right side never matches the left side. And so Dr. Blair's contention was if misalignments occur at the articulations, why not x-ray the articulations? And so once I, I took that course, I realized, obviously, this is what I need to do. And, well, I've been doing it ever since. Hmm. Uh, you've already kind of uh, started on this, but uh, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, about Blair Technique, its history? And uh, you've already said a little bit how it uh, compares in uh, implying uh, articulation x-rays. But uh, could you go into a little detail about that? Okay. Um, I think the, the first thing that we all have to really focus on is there's a theory we need to be united on the force and not the form. And that is that um, the chiropractic philosophy in upper cervical is just not just a philosophy of health, but it's a philosophy of living. And um, you're going to find that some people have absolutely huge hands and they cannot contact C1. They have to use a machine or an instrument. Um, a few of my colleagues have blown out their shoulders making corrections, and so they have to make adjustments using machines or instruments. So whatever technique works for that individual doctor, I'm a big believer. So one of the things I really like about Blair is it's not judgmental. Um, in other words, we don't say we're right, you're wrong. We just realize, hey, we're all trying to get to the same destination. We're just doing it a different way. Um, the concept of Blair is that um, because we're not symmetrical, um, and if you look at BJ's osteological collection, which actually was the largest in the world, Harvard's being the second largest, um, you just never find the right side and left side matching. And so Dr. Blair accidentally had a patient show up whose condyles actually faced directly forward. This is very rare because they usually converge to the anterior. And so he took a film on this person and could actually see the bone overlapping the condyle on one side and underlapping the condyle on the other side. And this was amazing to him. He says, wow, I can actually measure the misalignment of the condyle. But then he went back and he looked at all of his other films and found, well, he couldn't see it on the other patients. And it took him quite a while to finally realize, well, it's because the condyles are converged on everyone. So he decided, well, instead of taking one nasium, why don't we take two nasiums? Why don't we rotate the patient and shoot the central ray right down the center of the left atlantal occipital articulation? Why don't we do the same thing on the other side? And then we can actually look exactly at the joints and find out whether it's the atlas has overlapped or underlapped on the condyle. Now, Dr. Blair originally took these films through the ocular orbits. 
And Dr. Munsey conjectured, well, maybe we should shoot them through the maxillary sinus. And as it turned out, the maxillary sinus gave us what they called a clear window, a clearer look at these particular uh, joints. And so that's basically how the LeBlair views or LeBlair condop uh, retractor views uh, basically were developed. And then borrowing um, information he got from BJ because Dr. Blair just absolutely admired BJ because upper cervical almost tripled his lifespan. Um, he utilized three-dimensional x-rays. And the three-dimensional x-rays are used so that you can look at the joints on the right side of axis and on the left side of axis and put them in 3D to separate them out so you can actually determine whether the joint has moved anterior or posterior. And so those are basically the, the films that the Blair technique takes. And then Dr. Blair also discovered that we've always stressed laterality as being a big issue in uh, misalignments in the epicervical area. But based upon some mathematics and biomechanics, he actually discovered that it's actually more anterior and posterior motion that occurs sometimes on a two to one, sometimes three to one, sometimes on a four to one ratio. And so that particular motion has to be addressed. And so when you see a Blair adjustment, there's a tremendous amount of torque. And that's, of course, an attempt to move it from the A to P uh, fashion. And then actually, if you visualize how we're taught toggle in school, and then you take a look at videos of BJ adjusting, you find BJ makes this tremendous amount of torque and then his hair goes flying. And, and it was it was almost as if there were two different adjustments taught at the school. And when Dr. Lyle Sherman saw Dr. Blair make the adjustment, he said that's exactly the adjustment we had to make to practice in the BJ Palmer Chiropractic Research Clinic. So I think actually what Dr. Blair did is he took the things that this genius giant B.J. Palmer did, broke them down into a step-by-step -step fashion so that we mere mortals could try to copy what B.J. does. Um, now, granted, I could see broken down films of Tiger Woods, and maybe I could try to simulate what he does, but I'm not Tiger Woods. And of course, none of us are B.J. Palmer. So that's just kind of a synopsis of what, what Blair Technique's about. So he was uh, practicing uh, HIO then? He uh, made this discovery. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, let me. I, I want to ask you uh, another question uh, that is uh, um, you're probably not prepared for, but it is related to what we just talked about. How has uh, has Blair looked into uh, using CAT scans? Has Blair looked into using? The Blair technique, they looked into using CAT scans to uh, take... Um... You know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, a colleague of mine down in Southern California um, contracted with a radiology facility to, um, to take his digital x-rays. And then after a while, this company said, you know, it's not very cost-effective. We have to move the equipment. We have to put the head clamps on. Why don't we just take CTs? And so what they actually did is they could take CTs, and it only took two minutes. I went down and had them done myself. You come up with about 10,000 images, and then they can break them down to whatever you like. You can remove the styloid, remove the muscles, remove the ligaments. You can remove whatever you want. And as a result, we have reams and reams of, of CT scans that have been taken, and they really do 
give us a, a lot of information. One of the things it shows us is that the lateral margins of the mastoid, excuse me, lateral margin of the occipital condyles and lateral margins of the atlas do anatomically match each other. Um, Dr. Blair's contention was that the, the joint on the right and the joint on the left never match. But the top half and bottom half of the joints are like halves of a peanut shell. They, only those two surfaces will fit together. And that's the contention of the Blair work. We want to make sure that those lateral surfaces fit. And so based upon these CTs, we got a beautiful look at how they, how they do fit. We also were able to see the exact same thing on the Blair x-rays on the CT scans. Now, the only thing we don't know regarding this is the CT scans are taken supine, non-weight-bearing. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to be able to do weight-bearing CTs and see if it gives us the same information as weight-bearing uh, upper cervical x-rays. But yes, we have taken them, and uh, in fact, I can, I can show you some of them. They're actually very, very beautiful pictures. Have you ever heard of the mini-cat? Ever heard of uh, the mini-cat? No. This is, uh, and, and we're kind of getting like way off topic here, but uh, you've, you've really sparked something here with me. Um, <clears throat> I, years ago, uh, with uh, Dr. Pierce um, working on the uh, digital x-rays and the um, analysis that uh, was developed to use with the digital x-ray system for uh, Atlas Orthogonal, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, you know, it was revolutionary at the time. You know, we're like, wow, we're really ahead of the head of things. And uh, you know, Matt Sweat has uh, done a lot of research with uh, using CAT scans. And I uh, was put in contact with a neuromuscular dentist, um, and they work uh, primarily with the bite, the way the teeth come together, and have found that uh, when you can normalize a person's bite, which can be off, uh, off for all kinds of reasons, when you normalize their their bite, it can take care of an enormous amount of physiological issues, whether it be migraines, sinus problems. They were just finding that it had much uh, farther reaching um, results. And there was only one guy uh, who practiced this in uh, Sarasota where I was practicing, and I contacted him because they are actually uh, taught at the Las Vegas Institute about upper cervical chiropractic and how an upper cervical chiropractor can further their results in getting these people's bites normalized. And uh, so I uh, uh, actually, there, there wasn't only one in the area. There was like 12 in the area, but there was only one that called me back. And uh, he invited me to his office, and he showed me this mini CAT scan that they use. It sat in the corner of his office. It took up, uh, you know, it was like maybe five by five square. And uh, they're mainly sold to ear, nose, and throat doctors. And the patient sits down in this chair, and their and their head uh, is kind of supported a bit by a chin rest. Uh, they don't rest their chin in it, but it just kind of supports under their chin. These head clamps come in, and they hit a button, and this device just rotates around the skull and takes uh, beautiful CT scans of the head and neck. And I'm like, why doesn't anybody in upper cervical chiropractic know about this? And uh, and actually, I immediately thought about the Blair guys. You know, I'm like, they would love this. You know, 
Now, at the time, uh, there's only two companies I know of that uh, produce this instrument. Um, one is Zoran Technologies, it's X-O-R-A-N, and the other one is Boston Cone, uh, I believe is the name of them. And uh, at the time, it cost the same amount of money for a mini CAT scan as it did for a digital x-ray unit. Now, you know, prices come down in digital x-ray since then, and I have no idea what the um, mini CAT scans, you know, how that is, uh, prices fluctuated, but uh, that might be something you want to uh, look into because, I mean, that, you could, you could get your weight-bearing films, uh, you know, at, at least they'd be sitting weight-bearing. Well, it sounds like an amazing piece of equipment. Um, I am familiar with the Las Vegas Institute and the upper cervical affiliation they have, which is, you know, nice to see that uh, this segment of our profession is being recognized and that there's interprofessional cooperation between the two. Um, I certainly have seen the panoramic films that are taken, the standard digitals, where the uh, there's a 180-degree motion on the uh, tube as it, it wraps its way around the, the, the cranium. But I haven't actually seen those, so I'm definitely going to investigate it then, because that sounds pretty fascinating. Yeah, I tried to talk to uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, guys um, who I thought would just love this, you know, um, and I couldn't get anybody. It was almost like, you know, we've just integrated digital x-ray. Why would I go do this? was kind of the attitude I was getting, you know. Uh, but anyway, like I said, off topic, but you, you kind of sparked that when you were... Well, what would be interesting about this, the only real concern people have about CTs is that the radiation is generally substantially more than standard films. That's the other um, thing, too. With these machines, uh, the, the regulations, you don't even have to have the thing in a lead-line room. The only, uh, the only um, stipulation is you must be six feet away from it when you push the button. This guy had it out in the... He had it in his hallway, in a corner of his hallway. It's amazing. Yeah, because well, it's it's a lower level, because they're only doing the head and the neck. Sure. Um, anyway. Well, you know, most of us take care of a lot of dentists. I had one in last week who said, try doing three root canals in a row. You can't do them left-handed if you're a right-hander. So <laughs> I think occupationally, that's really hard on them. But uh, I, I'll have to communicate with some of these people and see if they can give me a heads up on it. Well, tell us about uh, your early practice experience. Well, we could spend 10 hours talking about all the mistakes I made. <laughs> you know, the, the, what I try to convey to the students when I teach them is the fact that I don't care if you've run the most successful business in the world. Running a healthcare practice is a completely different animal, uh, and it's humiliating. Most of us come out of practice with big egos, thinking because we've got the title doctor that we know everything, and we end up becoming educated fools. Um, I bought a lot of equipment as far as things that were, I was told was going to really enhance my practice, and I kind of fell for every every kind of scam that was out there, ethical ones, but ones that just really didn't do anything to enhance my practice. Um, we get maybe one walk-in from the Yellow Pages every year, so I finally spent a lot of money on, on Yellow Pages as it did nothing. Uh, crooked pens, the list goes on. So. It was not easy. Um, fortunately, I had my brother's footsteps to follow in, and uh, he showed me how to fill out the application for a loan, and we got a loan and found out we didn't have enough capital, went back and got a little bit more, and, and got things rolling. But it, it wasn't easy. I worked three days in San Francisco my first six months, and I worked the days that the doctor wasn't there, so I got absolutely no experience on running a practice. 
And I also did the same thing at my brother's office in San Leandro. I was working six days a week, but did not have anybody to oversee me and supervise what I was doing. So um, I felt competent, not excellent, felt competent in upper circle work, but just really didn't know anything about patient communication, how to run a practice. Um, fortunately, I took uh, word management, which um, was Charlie Ward's program on um, practice management, and I took that for five years. Now, obviously, I'm a slow learner, but I took that for <laughs> five years. But I went in with the attitude that I knew I was failing, and I knew I wasn't reaching the people, and I just took the attitude, you know what, I might be a good chiropractor, but I'm not a very good businessman. So I went in deciding I'm not going to take this program smorgasbord and just take the things I like and that I agree with. I'm going to have to push my ego aside, and I'm just going to do everything they tell me to do. And short of them making me change my technique, I was going to do everything they said. And lo and behold, we instituted their bookkeeping program. We instituted their cluster booking program. We instituted scripting which is imperative that everybody be told the same thing so that you make sure that you're educating your patients the right way. And here we are 33 years later still using the system we were taught. And then what happens when you get a system that's running very, very efficiently, everything comes natural. You can just step in and do your, the fun things, taking care of the patients and getting them well without having to worry about all these aspects of your business not running correctly. So I would highly, highly recommend <clears throat> any new doctor, any new student coming out to find a mentor, work in an upper cervical clinic, um, sign on with some type of a management team, have a coach, because even the Agassiz and the Tiger Woods and you know the top pros have a coach because you're too close to the environment to see the mistakes you're making. Um, and then, you know, just follow your dream. It's a phenomenal profession. We're lucky that we get to set our own hours, charge whatever we want to. We, we, we get to actually control the ship, but we also get to decide whether that ship goes out to sea or into the rocks. So I, I'd say I made my share of mistakes. Fortunately, none of them were fatal, and all of them were correctable. When you said that the only thing you would not allow them to do is to change your technique, were you doing Blair at that time? I was. Uh, I actually was doing Blair. I just made the conversion over. The conversion from... from HIO to Blair wasn't a major conversion. I had to tweak a few things on my x-ray unit, but I used the same tables, the same scanning, same same everything. So it was just a matter of um, taking out that six-cylinder engine and putting in that V8. And right. And the patients don't notice anything different, do they? Pardon? The patients, they don't notice anything different. They do don't they? notice, no. You know, the, many of your patients um, think you have an instrument in your hand when you're making the correction. They they really don't know what you're doing. Um, and I find it ironic. Many patients say, oh, I brought my friend in and I want her to watch the adjustment. The adjustment isn't a particularly attractive thing. It looks, it looks very traumatic. I mean, we use about five pounds of pressure, which is what it takes to basically crush a grape. But because of the noise of the headpiece, um, sometimes patients think they're Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII's wife, beheading uh, <laughs> taking place. And uh, uh, so, uh, no, they, they really don't know the difference. And, and to be upfront, patients don't care. Um, one of the things that I really have to convey to students is say, well, people want their back adjusted. They want this done. They want that done. And no, it's it's what's between your ears. It's what you believe in. And when you believe in something, your patients will believe in it. But if you don't really believe in the upper cervical method, 
your patients are going to pick up on that weakness and they're going to attack you and attack you and attack you to the point that you'll give in and you'll start doing what they want you to do as opposed to doing what you need to do. And I think that's the biggest reason for failure. I think the more people move away from BJ's teaching and the more they go into spinal manipulative therapy, not only the results drop down, I think the joy that you actually get from practicing dissipates too. So anyway, I'm up on my soapbox preaching right now. No, 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 that's fine. Uh, how did you uh, come to start teaching, Blair? How long had you been practicing, and were you approached by somebody else? And Well, I got hoodwinked into it. Um, <laughs> Dr. Uh, Muncie called me, and, and you, you didn't have the good fortune of knowing Dr. Muncie, but he was a very stern individual that was just, when he said something, you did it. But he had the kindest heart you want to um, imagine. But you never said no to Dr. Muncie. He said, you are coming down and you are assisting me with the seminars. So I started flying down to L.A. and over to Lancaster, which is a small desert town in Southern California, and my job was basically to turn the lights off and on. And uh, I would be his assistant and go for and do those kind of things and did that for about five years uh, through well, maybe 30, 35 seminars and got to the point that I virtually memorized everything he said then we started doing some of the seminars a bit in tandem, and then he recruited another doctor, Dr. David Topping, down in Yorba Linda, and so we kind of became co-instructors. And then about 10 years ago, Dr. Muncie, when we flew back to a conference we had in Atlanta, said, I, I'm, done, I'm done teaching, and I'd like you guys to take over, and so that's basically when we took over, and I basically have been teaching the, uh, the Blair Seminars ever since. What year was that again? Well, it was, uh, was probably, 19, probably 1995. Um, I was asked to go back to Palmer by Dr. Reekman when he was a president there in 99. And, of course, he issued this edict, I want the Blair Technique in clinic within six months. And then six years later, we finally got it into clinic, <laughs> failing to realize the, uh, you know, the hoops you have to jump through to, to make that process a go. Um, I think at this point in time I've given over 65 seminars at Palmer, and I think I've given 130 Blair seminars total. So um, um, it never gets boring, let's put it that way. Well, that's good. Okay. That's a lot of seminars. Well, it is. I did one in Los Angeles last week, and then we've got Dallas, our, our annual convention, uh, in next week. So uh, it's it's all coming together, but it's one of those things where you've discovered an upper cervical that you can't let off the accelerator. As soon as you lose momentum, things start to atrophy. Um, sadly enough, only 5% of our profession does upper cervical, and we're all asked the same question every day. Why aren't more people doing this? Why don't you have a doctor in this community? Why do you have an entire state that doesn't have a Blair doctor? And these are these are tough questions to answer because if what we're doing is so fantastic, why isn't everyone doing it? But you'll find that the analytical skills it takes to really stare at x-rays for a long period of time and the capacity to tell a patient who's in pain that they don't need to be adjusted takes a certain type of an individual. So we're not going to attract the masses. We're going to attract those people that look at things from a slightly different vantage point. So once I rationalize that all out in my mind, I quit being disappointed that we would have 30 people at Blair seminar and there would be 
300 people next door at an extremity seminar. Now to each his own. Are you married? Yes, yes. I met my wife in Davenport. Um, and uh, we, we married right after I graduated. I graduated in 74, so we got married in 75. Came out to California, and she enrolled in what was called Pacific States Chiropractic College, which was a precursor to Life West. She was in the second class, and then about a year into school, she got pregnant, and so um, dropped out of school and pretty much has run my practice. She's basically been the reason I've stayed afloat. And uh, we have two lovely daughters, and um, it's, it's, been, it's been an enjoyable life, let's put it that way. Are, are your uh, daughters still at home? My oldest daughter, I bring this up, is uh, 26. She's a Berkeley grad, Phi Beta Kappa. Thank you very much. Um, Congratulations. Uh, of course, the intelligence skips a generation, she tells me. Um, and she basically um, works as a, uh, at a nuclear lab that we have here. And she's married to a Swedish physicist. Wow. And actually, they got married in Sweden two years ago. We got to go over there, and they got married in a castle. It was a pretty a, a magnificent storybook type of an environment. My youngest is a senior in high school, and uh, right now we're going through the process of looking at colleges. And I thought chiropractic college was expensive. I'm now discovering that the standards colleges are just as expensive as chiropractic college. So needless to say, I think I'll be working for a little while. <laughs> well, what are the parameters that you set up to uh, make sure that your family doesn't get neglected uh, with uh, all the traveling and the teaching and the impact you're leaving on the profession? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Um, let me preface this with uh, a colleague of mine back east. I won't mention her name, but everybody knows who she is. Her father was very uh, successful, upper cervical doctor and, and, and a, uh, in the hierarchy of the ICA. And she was telling me that they never took a non-chiropractic vacation until after she was 16. So I wanted to make sure that we kind of balance things out. And the truth of the matter is we're very close to Hawaii here in California, so we used to take the children when they were young to Hawaii quite a bit. Over the last five years, we've been making one and occasionally two trips to Europe um, with the family. And I just really discovered that we need to, we need to have those getaways. Um, if, again, this is kind of for, for the young doctors coming out, at one time in my practice, I became so altruistic, I guess is the term I would use, that I would come in on Saturdays and I'd check the uh, phone, I'd come in on Sundays and check, and basically would have patients come in, and I was working seven days a week, and after about 30 days, I wanted to quit. I hated what I was doing, and it really was because of the fact that I felt like I was on call 24-7, and I couldn't be a human being. I had to be this robot of a doctor. So my older brother gave me some really good advice. He said, there's no such thing as a chiropractic emergency. He said, the patients have an emergency problem, they need to go to the hospital. That's what medical doctors are for. And so once I took that particular attitude, I came to realize it's okay to take days off. It's okay to take weekends off. It's okay to go on vacation. Nobody's going to die. And so I think the best thing a person can do is plan your trips in advance, take spontaneous ones every now and then, and really learn how to take that chiropractic hat off and put on that dad hat, the leisure hat, the, the hat that requires you to just relax and kick back and recharge your batteries. 
So I think what most of us do is we start out as sprinters in our practice, and then we become marathoners. And marathoners train a lot differently than sprinters do. And if you train correctly, you can have a long, long practice and just love what you're doing. Most upper cervical people don't retire. Now, that could be because we're really bad investors, which I hope is not the case, or it could be because we just really love what we do. But most of us do cut our hours back as time progresses so that we can, again, allow ourselves to do those leisure things with our family. So, again, I'm wordy, but you can see that's, that's basically what I've done, and it's worked out pretty effectively. Did you ever have people tracking you down at home? You know, no, and I'll tell you the reason why. My dad's office in Clinton was connected to the house, and it was, it was embarrassing to have people show up at early morning, late evening, things like that, because um, you think now is the me generation. It's always been the me generation. And most people think, well, it's just me. It'll only take a couple minutes. But you take that and multiply that by 10 people, and all of a sudden you're <laughs> you're pretty much having a disrupted day. Yeah. So I, I decided, number one, no, I don't know. I'm not going to have my, my house anywhere near my office. And when I leave that door, I leave that door. So, no, it hasn't been a problem. Mm. Uh, did you ever hear the story of uh, John Grostick, uh, who went uh, fishing? And uh, he saw this boat rowing out to him. And as it got closer, he realized it was a patient that was able to find out where he went fishing and rowed out to him to drag him back to shore so he could get adjusted. Have you ever heard that? I never heard that one. Oh, that's just like a nightmare. That's amazing. Well, we actually went to the Paris airport, and there was nobody else in there, and a woman sat down next to me and said, hey, how about an adjustment? <laughs> and I didn't, I guess it was a stethoscope around my neck. No. Uh, but it turned out this was a patient of mine who had transferred over my brother about 10 years ago, and she just recognized me, and I just didn't recognize her, but obviously she was kidding. Um, but now, now, that being the case, I, I have come in for emergency cases, and uh, we do check the messages. We're not going to let people suffer, and I would much, much, much rather um, come in and help a patient out than have them go to the hospital um, and be drugged up. So, you know, there's, there's a little bit of leeway on that, but, but you really, really have to draw on the reins, or people will be coming on robots after you. Sure. Well, who is your Atlas chiropractor? Well, um, what's that old Crosby, Stills, and Nash song? Love the one you're with? I guess it's the chiropractor I'm with. Um, uh, my brother, Dr. Steve Forrest, um, checks me pretty regularly, but fortunately, because I give all these seminars, I will occasionally be adjusted by Dr. Hubbard back at Palmer and Dr. Drew Hall down in Southern California. Um, even my older brother, who's coming up here in a few months to be checked, um, will check me too. So uh, I've never had a shortage of, of chiropractors, but oddly enough, we get together with 30 or 40 different chiropractors, and then a lot of times we all forget to get checked. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was talking to Dr. Hall about this the other day, and it seems like when you're subluxated, you get off purpose, you lose your joy and your enthusiasm, and actually practicing upper cervical becomes a chore. It's not that we mind it, it's just it, it takes an effort. And it seems like when you're clear, your mind is where it's supposed to be, your energy levels are where it's supposed to be, you love doing what you're doing. It's like a black and white thing. But the longer you're on chiropr under chiropractic care, the more difficult it becomes to perceive when you're out of alignment. 
So oftentimes it's your spouse that can tell you're out of alignment. And, you know, we're just like our patients. Oh, no, I'm not out. I don't need an adjustment. And invariably, nine out of ten times, yes, you do. So in essence, I've got a lot of good chiropractors taking care of me, but primarily I let my brothers do that. They don't charge me. (laughs) Do you think that the uh, upper cervical community is uh, on the path to unification, to true unification? And uh, if so, do you think the upper cervical evolution and the uh, upper cervical health centers of America group are responsible? Well, of course, I'm a little biased because I belong to UCHCA. Um, This was, when I first got in practice, I... um, I was really, really interested in research, and there weren't hardly any books out on chiropractic. The few that were were anti-chiropractic. And I always felt, I don't want to practice something that's placebo, that um, that isn't going to pass the acid test. And so I've always felt if we could just get chiropractic into hospitals, if we could just get chiropractic into mental institutions, if we could just get chiropractic upper cervical into prisons, these all the things BJ wanted to do, and we could really pass the acid test and show the efficacy of what we're doing. The problem, and, and again, I use John Grossi's quote all the time, that we're the only profession that circles the wagons and shoots inward. We have this tendency towards um, shooting ourselves in the foot and ridiculing each other because of some minor thing. Uh, I told the story Dr. Lenars told me about up in Washington where all these upper cervical doctors got together at a monthly meeting drew one line on a nasium view and then proceeded to argue for an hour over that one line. And, and so as a result, we spin our wheels a lot or we have a tendency towards indicating, well, I'm the only one that does this great work and nobody else does it, which is ludicrous. That you can't take care of 10% of your town much more than the entire world. So we need to unify. Um, and really all we're talking about is packaging up what we do so that the public can identify it. I mean, I don't want to go into a Starbucks and find nuts and bolts there. And I don't want to go into Home Depot and buy Espresso. I mean, I, I, I want that company to adequately advertise what they do. And we need to do the same thing. And a lot of people have had ideas of bringing things together. But sadly enough, there's oftentimes been an agenda or there's been a bias that's been there. I'll tell you, I've watched this program very, very closely, the evolution and so on, and I cannot pick up an ego and I cannot pick up a bias in this. And with the fact that we've got Greg Buchanan, Greg Buchanan in this, and we've got the Tomasis, and we've got these laymen out there that are helping us with this is amazing. See, because you know the average chiropractor puts a, a yellow page ad in with a big brain up there, and we think people are supposed to be impressed by that. And they, they look at it as an autopsy picture. They're not impressed, okay? So we don't know how to promote our product. And what we really need are outsiders who are professionals in this that can show us how to promote what we do. Now, you know what our biggest problem of this unification is going to be. As the documentary comes out, as more people hear about this, you've only got 5% of the profession to handle the public. We're going to be overwhelmed. So what we need more and more and more and more high-quality upper cervical doctors to fulfill the need because it's going to happen. So, yes, I do feel they played a major, major role in our unification. I think it was going to happen eventually, but interestingly enough, at the first evolution, we kind of all, like a, 
you know, high school dance. The girls stood on one side, the boys stood on the other side, and we all kind of mingled with people we were familiar with. Yeah. The last one, the co-mingling, was excellent to the point that we joked and laughed and enjoyed each other and, and recognized, hey, we have differences, and we're kind of like BJ's children. None of the children look alike, act alike, or, or talk alike, but they're all related. Yeah. And yes, kids argue, but boy, they'll defend each other to the hilt. And I think that's where we need to be. We need to be to the point of that. We'll recognize those differences, but we need to defend each other at that instead of criticizing each other. And I think we're getting to that point. That's excellent. What uh, historical occurrence in chiropractic do you consider to be the most negative, of, of most negative significance, and what occurrence do you uh, um, consider to be of most positive significance? Well, <laughs> I could quote Dr. Crowder, who was BJ's doctor, and he said once we got insurance coverage for chiropractic, it was the worst thing for chiropractic. Mm -hmm. And he said because that took us from a healing art to a back and neck treatment profession. Um, I, I don't really know if that's the case, um, but somehow we lost direction. And somehow we threw the baby out with the bathwater. We threw the philosophy of the bigness of what chiropractic can do for people physically, emotionally, psychologically. And we replaced it with what we thought the public and the medical profession would accept. Um, and it reminds me very much of what happened to osteopathy. Um, osteopaths were a strong profession, but they decided they wanted to be like medical doctors. And you may not realize this, in 1960, they changed the law in California, and in the beginning, an osteopath could become an MD, but they would use lowercase letters for the MD after their name. And uh, they took all the osteopaths, took them out of the colleges, and replaced them by medical doctors. And so basically, osteopaths and medical doctors have been exactly the same in this state. Um, I don't see that same fate happening to us, but I'm worried that everybody and his brother is teaching manipulation. And now that they're discovering that manipulation is safe, that you don't have to use drugs, you don't have to worry about the side effects and reactions, um, everybody wants to do it. In California, athletic trainers are trying to get licensure for manipulation. Massage therapists want to do the same thing. Physical therapists can. Homeopaths got the law passed a couple of years ago. They could do manipulation. And I know we steadfastly say, oh, adjustments aren't manipulation, and I agree. But the public doesn't know that. Right. And if you think about it, if a physical therapy therapist has a, uh, a relationship with a medical doctor and they're doing physical therapy, who do you think's going to get referred to by the MD? Well, physical therapist. Because they can kind of control that environment. Who's going to probably have better insurance recover coverage? Obviously, it's going to be those people that have a liaison with the medical profession. So I really see the fact that we have to, number one, maintain our chiropractic identity and philosophy. I think that's critical. And I think the other thing is the fact that we have to be specialists. We have to be so good in what we're doing that if anybody wanted to copy what we're doing, they would have to go get a chiropractic degree and specialize in upper cervical. Yeah. So if we lose our rights to x-ray, if we lose our rights to, to do many of the things we do that make upper cervical doctors unique, we're just going to become glorified physical therapists, and we can't win that battle. Yeah. 
because we have three months of physical therapy training. They have four to six years of physical therapy training. So I, I really do think that keeping our identity is probably most critical. Uh, do you have a positive, a positive occurrence? Um, historically, I mean? Yes. Well, you know, I think it... I think it comes down to the fact that we all have ulcers over things that have happened to our profession. But you can't keep the truth down. You really can't. Yeah. If, if what we did didn't work, we would have been destroyed ages ago. And, you know, I'm not just talking upper cervical. I, I, I love all of chiropractic, and I would much rather refer my patients out to an extremity chiropractor, to a low back specialist if I've got a hot disc that isn't resolving. I keep it in the family. I really believe that we think alike, we look alike, we do things a little differently at that, but we're not into the drugs and surgery. That's where I divide the line. Um, but the truth of the matter is the proof is in the pudding. If we can deliver the goods, especially when the AMA in 1947 say their job is to contain and eliminate chiropractic, to delicense us, there actually was a bill that went through California about 10 years ago where they slid something in at the last minute to delicense all the chiropractors in California. And it was pulled at the very last minute, and it wouldn't have held up, but it would have been extremely embarrassing to our profession. So the truth of the matter is, is every single underhanded trick that our enemies can use against us usually blows up in their face. And the reason is because it's not a strong lobbies because we're a pittance compared to what medicine has to offer that's going to be our future. It's going to be public support. The people recognizing we've got a drugless, surgery-free method of health care that really makes a world of difference for patients. And so, to me, I really think the positive thing is, is the results we get are going to get us to the finish line. Um, how soon we get there is going to depend upon how cohesive we get and how much we can, we can come together on this. And if I give you one real quick example on this whole thing... Um, I had a patient who's been with me for about a year and a half, and he just can't find anything good about me, my office, my staff, my adjustment, anything I do. He just hates it all. But he keeps coming in. And about a week ago, he pulled me aside and said, Doctor, I need to talk to you. He said, my neck pain I came in for is gone. My arm numbness is completely gone. My back pain is gone. But I never told you for the last three and a half years I've been on the strongest antidepressants you can be on, and they really don't work. He said, I'm angry with my wife. I'm angry with my children. I'm angry with my boss. I'm angry with the world. And he said, a month ago, as a result of my chiropractic, all my anger has disappeared. He said, I think what your adjustments have done is they've adjusted my brain chemistry, and, and, and things are balanced in that. So the great news is I'm off the antidepressants. He said, but one of the problems with the antidepressants is I would have about 12 suicidal thoughts per day. He said, no, I wasn't going to commit suicide, but can you imagine trying to play with your children when you're trying to think of ways of doing yourself in? So, you see, the moral to this is if I had only been able to, quote-unquote, treat him for three months because that's what the insurance would have allowed, great, got his back pain under control, but he's still has such pent-up anger. Is this guy going to go postal? Is this guy going to slug his wife? Is he going to hurt his children? Is he going to jeopardize his career? Is he going to... All these things can happen 
when your nervous system isn't firing correctly. And it takes time for the innate intelligence in the body to reverse the disease process. And we can't put it on a calendar. We can't put it on RVS scale. It just comes down to the fact that staying clear of neurological interference can reverse the disease process. And so those are the types of cases that stand out in front of me and, and, and let me stand up proudly and say, yes, this chiropractic care works. Upper cervical is fantastic. It just doesn't work as rapidly as we all want it to. Yeah. We want to have a drive-through office where we can reach out the window, make the adjustment, and the patient goes home and they're all well. That's not the way it works. Okay? Yeah. Uh, disease takes time and healing takes time. What, uh, what do you see... You've covered this a little bit uh, uh, just a minute ago, but what do you see specifically to uh, as a threat to upper cervical chiropractic, and uh, and how do you think it should be handled? That's a good good question. Um, I've been toting uh, um, my concerns um, with. I, I sent out an email to about 350 chiropractors and, and upper cervical uh, students a week, and I've been really concerned about. Small segments within our profession trying to take away our rights to take analytical X-rays. Um, there's an old saying: if you can't see it, you can't fix it. Um, and I think it's ironic that we feel as a profession that we can palpate subluxations and see if you've got a transverse process on atlas that's three quarters of an inch long on one side and a quarter of an inch long on the other side you're going to feel, wow, that atlas is way out of alignment on that one side, when in reality it's just how the bones are shaped. Um, if you have a joint on the right side of C2 that's shaped at a 60-degree angle and on the left side it's at 30-degree angle, those bones are moving on different planes. So when you take that patient through motion palpation, you're going to find it's going to glide much easier on that 30-degree angle than on that 60-degree angle. So. It really comes down to the fact that we have to see it to correct it. So we see misalignments within a degree, within a millimeter. And so BJ imported the fifth x-ray unit into the United States. He had the most elaborate biography clinic you can absolutely imagine. And the crux of upper cervical is x-ray the spine. I cannot tell you how many cases I've had, case after case after case after case, where I've found fractures that were undetected, bone cancer, all sorts of problems that would contraindicate a correction. And if an adjustment was made, I obviously could cause damage and would be culpable for that damage. Last week we had a patient come in who was bucked off a horse. Two weeks ago she fell on a railroad track. She dislocated her shoulder and hurt her back, so they x-rayed her back and her shoulder. They didn't x-ray her neck. She has a fractured atlas with a gap of about a half an inch on the posterior arm. Wow. It was never detected. And so it's, it's not our right, it's our patient's rights to have their neck film to determine not only is it out of alignment, but for those upper cervical doctors that choose so, to take a post-X-ray to determine did it go back in alignment. So I think that that's an issue there, and I, I think, again, it's one of those things where we need to do research, but I also think it's one of those things that public demand is going to insist that pictures be taken. And oftentimes when you finish your exam, your patient will many times not ask if you're going to take x-rays. They will pretty much demand that you do. Um, 
so what can we do about that? I do feel that we need to publish papers on that. I mean, we need to be participatory, and Kirk Erickson's uh, safety and efficacy studies. Um, I do think we need to be as cautious as we can to keep the radiation figures down, but you probably will discover when you look at the figures, we use a minimum amount of radiation based upon the benefit we get. So the risk-benefit ratio is so far on the side of benefit, it's ridiculous. I'd say the second thing that concerns me, and I alluded to this earlier when I talked about that man taking the antidepressants, um, I'm concerned about the fact that there are certain time limits that are put on how long somebody can be under your care by insurance companies. There's certain diagnoses that supposedly don't fall under the you know, provinces of what chiropractic can, can resolve. And the truth of the matter is our licenses pretty much allow us to take care of any kind of health condition, except some infectious ones. And we just need to protect that right. Uh, I had a new patient come in yesterday with an optic neuropathy, and she only has 10% vision in her right eye. She saw the upper cervical, power of upper cervical videos, saw the patient I talked about who had her vision completely restored and came in recognizing she's seen five ophthalmologists, nobody can do anything, and she's looking to see if upper cervical can make a difference. Ironically enough, one millimeter misalignment on her blood x-rays, but she's got her first adjustment, and I'm gonna be anxiously awaiting the progress. It may take two months, may take six months, may take a year. We have no control over that. But we need to, number one, be able to take care of whatever condition presents itself, if it falls within the parameters of what we think we can help. And number two, we need to be given enough time for that condition to unwind back to normal. Because we pretty much know the DC after our name doesn't stand for Doctor of Chiropractic, but it stands for Doctor of Chronics. <laughs> By the time people get to us, we're the fifth, sixth doctor. Yeah. Um, then I think the last thing that um, we have to worry about, and I think that this is a very, very big issue, and that is um, people claiming to be upper cervical whether this is a chiropractor or a medical doctor, when they're really not. Um, as you very well know, there's an explosion taking place in upper cervical, and we do have the documentary coming out. We have the Power of Upper Cervical video coming out. We have a research clinic that uh, Greg Buchanan is going to be building in, um, uh, in Australia. Uh, we have all sorts of things taking place. Um, Until Williams had his upper cervical doctor on his show talking about how his MS has gotten better. Marshall Nichols Sr. has done the excellent study on blood pressure reduction. We have a doctor in New Jersey, a Blair doctor, who has provided care for over 50 MS patients, seeing remarkable changes. We have a Blair doctor in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who has seen over 139 Meniere's cases, a supposedly incurable disease, in which he's seen resolution in most of those cases. So we're really starting to see the change is taking place. So as a result, people are going to jump on the bandwagon. Um, for example, a colleague of mine in L.A., one of his patients was at the hairdressers, and she said she heard two women talking, and one woman said, oh, I went to my Blair doctor yesterday, and I'm feeling so much better after he adjusted my low back and hip. And then the other woman said, yeah, I went to one too. And the former one said, well, what did the x-rays show? Oh, he didn't take any x-rays. So, so we, here we have one doctor doing full spine work, claiming to be Blair, another doctor um, not taking x-rays, claiming to be Blair. And it's like they put another bullet in their holster. And so people who look things up on the internet or yellow pages or whatever say, oh, Blair, that's a good technique. I'm going to go to him or her. 
and then it's going to be false advertising. It's a bait and switch. And if we're talking about a car, big deal. If we're talking about your health, when you adjust the upper neck correctly, you absolutely change that person's life. When you adjust it incorrectly, you substantially alter that patient's life in a negative fashion. Uh, we had two doctors coming up from Logan to Palmer. They came up to nine of our seminars. They've opened up in Alexandria, Virginia. Once they opened up, a doctor called and said, oh, I, I do Blair too. I'd like to come over for an adjustment. And they said, okay, well, could you bring your x-rays? And he said, well, I don't have any x-rays. So well, do you, could you give us your angles? And he said, what angles? And obviously the person had no idea what Blair was. And when they looked up on the website, he had like 50 different techniques, including Grostic, et cetera, listed after his name. Now, to me, that is extremely deceptive advertising, okay? So this can become an issue. I mean, I could claim to be a brain surgeon, but I'm not. Um, and it's the same thing right here. So everybody says, well, what's the solution? The solution is difficult. But what we've decided to do with the Blair is we're going to do on our website, people learn by seeing. They don't learn by hearing. And what we're going to do is we're going to put a section on there, what you should see in your Blair chiropractor's office. And we're going to show pictures of a scanner. We're going to show a picture of the low side posture adjusting table. We're going to show a picture of the special type of x-ray unit we have, the special type of x-rays we take, and probably finish it up with, if your doctor's doing Blair and doesn't have this equipment, ask your doctor why. You know, as a consumer, you know, that's where it needs to come from. Why aren't you doing this? Why don't you have this? Put the doctor on the spot, and hopefully that'll be a start. That is but we a great... just want continuity. If you go to a doctor who's doing the tech, who, who uses a Blair technique in Kansas City, and then in Cleveland, and then in New York, and so on, you want continuity. You don't want somebody who's just doing things with a flip of a coin. Yeah. So I do think there's solutions there. That is a great idea the, uh, about uh, what you should see, putting that up on the website. I think that's a fantastic idea. And I hope all the other techniques do that, too, because everybody uses the Internet. And, but we really do learn by seeing. And, and I know we can have all sorts of certification programs, but I honestly don't think that really means much to the public. I think they really just need to see what the product is supposed to look like. Yep. Um, and I think we also need to focus at holding a ceiling that... Our objective is to not adjust you every visit. Our objective is to get that correction to stay in as long as possible. But so, so there's some issues like that that we need to contend with. What do you regard as your greatest upper cervical chiropractic achievement to date? My greatest achievement? Your greatest achievement. Well, <laughs> being lucky that I started in the profession at a certain time. I, um, I never got to meet BJ, although I think I actually did when I was a little kid. I think my dad introduced me, but, you know, recall isn't the best in the world. But I actually got a chance to learn under Dr. Schmiedel, Dr. Um, Crowder, Russell Earhart, um, Galen Price, Virgil Strang. I mean, all the big movers and shakers um, that came after BJ and shaped the world. I got to study under Dr. John Grostick Jr., Dr. Stephen Duff Sr., Dr. Weldon Muncy, Dr. Bill Blair, Dr. Dan Kuhn, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. And it, it, it allowed me to see the sacrifice these people made. I mean, 
we've got it made. We're, we've got great incomes. We've got great respect in the community. We, we can send our kids to the best schools. We, you know, we get these phenomenal results and so on. And we didn't have to go to jail. We didn't have to um, go through the hardships and the ridicule and the criticism. I mean, I, I remember my dad's day at that. It was so difficult. But my dad was a fighter. He, he ran for county coroner, and you had to be an MD to be a coroner, but he ran for it anyway. He got great publicity. He lost, but he got great publicity. He had an attitude to say, you got to fight this stuff. And so we really had some lawyers that went to war for us. And what we need to make sure is we don't get fat sassy, that we don't get sloppy in our technique, that we don't start um, abusing the things that allowed us to get to where we were. So as far as I'm concerned, I think I think the greatest achievement was just being born at the right time and actually being able to associate myself with great role models because um, I could tell you story after story of doctors who had such monumental changes take place in their lives that you could not pry them away from the philosophy and belief of BJ's upper cervical no matter what. You could offer them a million dollars to go somewhere else and they would not because they just were sold in their conviction in what we do. So, to me, the greatest achievement was just hanging around some pretty neat people. Yeah. How would you like people to describe your contribution to upper cervical chiropractic? Well, um, probably that um, non-confrontational facilitator, and that is that I try to, try to bring people together, and I try to con concentrate on not our differences but our commonalities. Um, that could either be perceived as wishy-washy or it could be perceived as the fact that I realize we get nowhere uh, shooting our you know, bows and arrows at each other. So I'd like to say as kind of somebody that's interested in unification but thoroughly and confidently sold on what he does. If you could change one thing about the curriculum in chiropractic colleges, what would you change? Well, of course, I'd eliminate all other techniques. The challenge that we have in the chiropractic colleges is the fact that students are being told by every technique guru in existence that their technique is the best and this is the best and this is the easiest and why take x-rays and there's all sorts of baloney out there and, and you know, I, I could just imagine being a surgeon being taught 15 different techniques, uh, 10 of which are obsolete. You know, I'd be very angry as a student. I would say, I don't want obsolete. I want something that is current, is modern, is efficacious make sense neurologically, etc. So I think a couple things. Number one, upper cervical should be taught in every one of the colleges. I don't know why. I mean, it's a, it, it isn't. It's, it's, it's a legitimate, efficacious, safe method of care. Um, so number one, it should be taught and it should be mandated at least a core curriculum one so doctors can become knowledgeable about it. And so we don't hear these terms, oh, it's archaic, it's dated, it's old, it's this or that, from people that don't even know what it's all about. Um, there was a professor at the college that Dr. Hall went to, and he bashed upper cervical, and then Drew went up front to talk to him, and then the guy said, well, frankly, I don't know anything about upper cervical. <laughs> so it was that case where he was criticizing through ignorance. Um, so number one, I think that they need to be introduced to it. And number two... Dr. Kern was talking one time once he became president at Palmer. He was thinking, you know, I'd like to make it where it would be mandatory that all students matriculating into the schools have a set of Blair x-rays and be adjusted up perfectly. Now, maybe that's a little bit of a pipe dream there. Um, but 
I really would like to see a lot of these people under upper cervical care because one of the sad things is many of the students come in asymptomatic and leave symptomatic um, just because of the fact that they're getting technique of the week. And it's very difficult to get well when your spine is being adjusted in you know, 15 different fashions. Um, and I'd also like to see, obviously, this directly go into the research departments. I'd like to see a certain section of the research department focus on upper cervical. I would also like to see upper cervical separated from full spine. And not because one is better than the other, although you know my opinion on that, but because they're different. And because they're different and they utilize different philosophies and different procedures and so on, they just need to be taught differently instead of trying to meld them into just another method. So I know I'm being a little obscure on that, but I really just would like to see upper cervical emphasize much more in the schools because if I'm going to pay $100,000, $120,000 in my chiropractic education, I at least deserve to learn about the most efficacious method of care the profession has to offer. Great. If uh, if doctors, uh, if they'd like to get in touch with you or uh, learn any more about uh, Blair, do you have uh, a number that they could call or a website? Well, you know, probably the easiest thing would be just to contact me via email. Um, you know, we all play phone tag, which gets pretty ridiculous. Um, so mine, of course, is t.dc at sbcglobal.net. Great. Well, Doc, thank you very much for doing this. Well, thank you. Do you have any parting words? You know, I was told something when I first started going to practice. I went down to visit this one doctor, if, if you've got two minutes here, and there was only one chiropractor in that town. And I went in, and the first thing he told me is he said, where'd you go to school? I said, Palmer. He said, well, the best day of chiropractic is the day BJ died. And then I said, well, I was thinking of practice in your town. He said, there's too many chiropractors in this town. I said, you're the only chiropractor. <laughs> and so, so, I mean, it was just the antithesis of the joy that should be in our profession. Then I went down to Santa Cruz, a little south of there, and I talked to this really nice chiropractor. He said, you know, I'm practicing in a, in a community that's very transient, you know, vacationers and so on. So he says, I don't have the same kind of practice you'd have in an inner city or something like that. He said, but the best advice I can ever give you is practice where you want to live people will come to you. So I really think we need to take that. Instead of breaking everything down to geography and socioeconomics and all these other issues, which are important, I think the most important thing is to really just practice where you want to live because they'll come to you. You've got a special way of getting people well, and if you administer it the way you've been taught, you're going to see unparalleled results, and you're not going to have an unhappy day in your practice. Those would be my parting words. That's very good advice. All right. Okay. Thanks again, Doc, and you have a great day. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye-bye.